It's hard to hold a microphone in one hand and a book in the other hand. Where do I hold my coffee and my vape? Anyways, before chapter one here in the Generations book, this Generations book talks about the future, which it was written in 1991, and it talks about the future, which is now. So that's why I thought it was kind of cool. Plus, I want to look back into some sociological stuff that was written pre-Obama era type stuff. So that's why I got into this book for a few reasons. So here's a little quote before uh, the chapter starts. There is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation has a rendezvous with destiny. That's Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1936. He said that, I guess. Okay, chapter one. I have to put the book down with my hand because I only got one hand here. Chapter one. Moving, uh, people moving through time. 28 years had passed, but the message to other generations remained the same. George Bush's inaugural parade, like John Kennedy's in 1961, featured a full-scale model of his vehicle in Valor. In Bush's case, a Grumman Avenger fighter plane, and Kennedy's a PT-class torpedo boat. When Bush bailed out over Chichijima, Michael Dukakis was a fifth grader in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. Dukakis later served in Korea. But when he sat atop a tank in his presidential campaign, people laughed. It just wasn't the same. Back in 1944, Illinois Governor Jim Thompson had been put in the second grade, three years behind Dukakis. You don't need to be shot down from the sky to know the world is a dangerous place, Thompson remarked about Bush. But my guess is it sure helps. Marching alongside these two parade floats, both times were saluting veterans, with one important difference. At Kennedy's inaugural, the float bearers were men of vigor in their late 30s and 40s celebrating their arrival into the national leadership. At Bush's, the vets were in the late 60s and 70s, evoking more remembrance than hope. Time marches on. The aging parades had to realize that, in, that 1989 would be the last time America would salute the triumphant presidential arrival of the World War II combat hero. At age 20, George Bush had been among the Navy's youngest fighter pilots when he was shot down over the Pacific. Almost certainly, the next American president will walk down Pennsylvania Avenue, having known that war through a child's eyes, or perhaps through nothing more than a history book and film clips. When that happens, Americans of all ages will feel something missing. In the 30 years from 1961 through 1990 and counting, the American presidency had been the exclusive preserve of men who ranged in age from 17 to 34 on Pearl Harbor Sunday, men belonging to what we call the G.I. Generation, Never before in the nation's history has one generation held the White House so long. Few others had exercised such massive power over public events in each phase of life, from youth to old age. The GIs have been the confident and rational problem solvers of the 20th century America, the ones who knew how to get things done. First as the victorious soldiers and Rosie the Riveters, later as builders of rockets and highways. Lastly, as aging presidents in the era of democracy's economic triumph over communism. The GI life cycle 
bears the imprint of the threshold moments that catapulted America into the modern superpower era. The first GI babies were born in 1901, and the last one turned 75 in the year 1999, a span exactly coinciding with the American century of economic growth, technological prog progress, and mostly military triumph. Following a debauched and dispirited lost generation, they brought cheerfulness, public spirit, and collective muscle to every problem they encountered. Older generations once looked upon them as good scouts with the mission of civic virtue. Decades later, younger generations came to see them as powerful and friendly, if also culturally complacent and overly macho. From childhood on, GIs have defined what contemporary American means by citizenship, that two-way symbiosis between man and government. In the person of George Bush, America clings to one last dose of that old war hero right stuff, uncertain about what the future will be like without GIs at the, at the helm. Contemplating the, this generation's inevitable passing from power, we have been waving it goodbye, much as we would a beloved family member whose train is pulling out of a station a station we could call midlife. But let's walk down the bit, the track for a bit. For some time now, this same train has been pulling into another station, elderhood. The expression senior citizen is so much a part of the modern vocabulary that we forget how new it is and how it did not come into the wide use until the first peers of these seven GI presidents started to reach old age. As with every other life phase, GIs have infused old age with uncommon collective energy. In the early 1960s, the elderly were America's unhappiest, loneliest, and poorest age bracket. Politically, they tended to be unorganized, Republican-leaning, and hostile to government. Yet over the last quarter century, all these attributes had reversed direction. Polls now show that most people over the age 65 to be happy and socially assertive. Members of an exploding list of senior clubs, condo associations, and lobbying groups, they are no longer fixed income thanks to inflation-indexed government benefits. Meanwhile, the elderly poverty rate has fallen from the highest of any age bracket in the mid-60s to well below the rate for childhood, children, and young adults today. Of all the circa 1990 age groups, these elders are the heaviest voting and by far the most democratic-leaning, with polls showing them overwhelmingly supporting a big government. Yes, we can still find an elder age bracket whose members are substantially lonely, poor, and Republican, but they are not GIs. These very old people, most, mostly in their 90s, are the dwindling survivors of the lost generation. How do we explain this dramatic change and what it means to be an old to be old in America. This sudden transformation both in the behavior of people past their middle 60s and in the treatment they receive from their juniors, we could, on, on the one hand, attribute it to a variety of complex, apparently unrelated factors, public policy, demographics, social and economic trends, changing family attitudes, and so on. Alternatively, we could attribute it to the gradual replacement of one's generation by another in the elder age bracket. Let's put it schematically. It is easier to explain why 75-year-olds transformed from type X in 1965 to type Y in 1990, or to explain how the Y-like 50-year-olds 
we remember from the 1965 age into the why like 75 year olds in 1990 the latter is by far the better explanation separate generations are aging in place over the last quarter century gi's have moved up the age ladder to a notch transforming uh, elderhood the way they once did every other phase of life seldom do we draw any con connection uh, among america's first boy scouts and girl scouts charles lindbergh ccc tree planters and TVA dam builders, D-Day troops, Levittowners, Stan, The Man, Musical, Jim and Betty Anderson, and Father Knows Best, Kennedy's Best and Brightest, General Westmoreland, Reagan Schulberger, and the American Association of the Retired Persons. We greet the GI train and later bid it farewell at each station, but not many of us recognize it as the same train. Is this an isolated case? To consider this question, let's extend our railroad analogy. Picture one life, one long life cycle track with birth, the place of origin, and death, the destination. Imagine phase of life stations along the way, from childhood to elderhood. Now picture a series of generational trains, all heading down the track at the same speed. While the GI train is moving from one station to the next, other trains are also rolling down the track. If we picture ourselves sitting at any given station watching one train go and another arrive, we notice how different each train looks from the next. Replacing the GIs at the midlife station and, and overdue for a turn at presidential leadership is the silent generation train, carrying men and women who came of age too late for World War II combat and too early to feel the heat of the Vietnam draft. These were the unobtrusive children of depression and war, the Conformist, lonely crowd, Grace Kelly and Elvis Presley, young newlyweds with bulging nurseries, Peace Corps volunteers, the outside agitators of the Mississippi summer, the middle managers of the expanding public sector, divorced parents and multi-child households, makers of R-rated movies, Hugh Hefner and Gloria Steinman, space shuttle te technocrats, and supply-side economists, Gary Hart and Mike Dukakis, litigators and arbitrators, Jim Henson and McNeil, and less colorful cabinet officials in the Bush administration. Back in the 1960s, we used to think of 55-year-olds as homogeneous and self-confident, clingers to worn marriages and brittle proponents of a bland culture under siege from the young. In 1990, 55-year-olds danced to rock music and, and wink at unmarried kids who bring a date home for the night. They are sentimental pluralists, easy touches for charity, inclined to see two sides of every issue, and not especially sure-footed. Today's midlifers dominate the helping professions and have provided late 20th century America with its most committed civil rights advocates of public interest lawyers. And most of it most of its best-known sexual swingers, feminists, and out-of-the-closet gays. A quarter century ago, we would never have associated a crowd like this with the peak years of adult power. Now we do. At the rising adult station, behind the silent, the silent generation, comes the best-known of all American generation, the boomers, who came to college after Eisenhower and before Carter, malaise of 1979. These were the babies of the optimism and hubris beaver cleaver and musketeers the post sputnik high school kids 
whose SAT scores declined for 17 straight years. Student strikers, flower child hippies, and draft uh, resistors. Hamilton, Jordan, and Jody Powell. Yuppie singles avoiding attachment. Gilda Radner and Oprah Winfrey, grassroots evangelists. Oliver North and William Bennett. Oat brand eaters and Peary drinkers. Earth firsters and anti-drug crusaders. The boom generation has totally transformed its current phase of life. Reflect back on a typical man-woman couple approaching age 40 around 1970. They had been married for almost two decades, with children nearing college age. Their family income was rising swiftly. They emulated their elders, envied their juniors, and disliked the suggestions that any one set of values was superior to another. Contrast that picture with the typical 30-something couple of today. The woman has worked since college. Possibly they are married, and just possibly they are not. Possibly their income is rising, and just possibly it is stagnating or falling behind uh, inflation. At most, they have two children, none beyond elementary school. They firmly believe in values, intensely self-immersed. They neither emulate nor envy people older or younger than themselves. A quarter century ago, such a couple would have stood out as hard, hard luck misfits. But don't tell boomers that. Polls show their level of self-satisfaction is quite high and remarkably unrelated to their income and family status. The next generation train rolls into the coming-of-age station wearing shades, averting the critical glare of the adult world. We have seen this generation before. These were the first babies American women took pills not to have. Rosemary's baby. The children of sharply rising divorce and poverty rates. Pupils in experimental classrooms without walls, latchkey kids, precocious Gary Coleman and Tatum O'Neill, people's sense of the sex-obsessed 1970s Valley Girls, college students criticized by one blue-ribbon commission after another, young singles of the post-AIDS social scene, inner-city drug entrepreneurs, boomerang children living at home after college, the best-qualified recruits in military history, the hard-nosed invaders of Panama, and the defenders of the Persian Gulf oil. In the late 1960s, 20-year-olds were considered radicals, the conscious of America, and they drew the respect of the adult world they were attacking. Today, kids in their early 20s comprise America's most Republican-leaning age bracket. They associate smoothly and and compliantly with elders, who for their part express disappointment in how they are turning out. To date, This generation has no consensus name. We label it the 13th generation, partly for the gauntlet its members see in its bad reputation. Also, in recognition that it is the 13th to know the American nation and flag. This book refers to 13ers, um, Generation X as 13ers. Today we know them as Generation X. Last comes a train still taking on passengers, with adult America holdering its departure. These tots are entering a childhood today's collagen would hardly recognize. Check out their brief life cycle, and you will find the first test tube babies. Everybody's baby. Jessica McClure, rescued from Midland Well. Super babies. The diapered stars of Raising Arizona. And the three men and a baby. Kinder Care Kids, Baby M, and Hillary Morgan. At the center of the custody disputes. Inner city kindergartens in uniform, little Dooney, safe from the crack house, 
What's that? Little Dooney safe from the crack house. George Bush's Hispanic grandchildren and the high school class of 2000 whom President Bush, former Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, and the numerous others have already targeted a smarter, better behaving, and more civic-spirited wave of American youth. Any community trying to treat its children this way in the late 1960s would have been condemned as culturally totalitarian. But in the early 80s, adults began to look up Adults began to look upon children quite differently, spawning a new millennial generation, the first of whom will indeed come of age around the year 2000. This book talks about millennials, but it doesn't have a name for Generation X. As millennials keep climbing aboard, adding close to 4 million new passengers every year, two trains are reaching the end of the line. The very old lost peers of Eisenhower, Truman, and Fitzgerald and a smattering of super super centenarians from Franklin Roosevelt's missionary generation. One other train we would have seen in the 1960s, Woodrow Wilson's progressive generation, has disappeared entirely. In Figure 1-1, we list the schedule of generational trains in 1969 and now. Over this 20-year period, seven have been alive at any one time. Leaving aside the very old and very young, America today has four generations that form what we call a generational constellation, the lineup of living generations ordered by phase of life. The constellation is always aging, always shifting, moving up one life cycle notch roughly every 20, 22 years. Youths come of age, rising adults reach midlife, midlifers reach ad- uh, elderhood, elders pass on or reach advanced old age and a new set of babies enters youth. Whenever the constellation shifts up by one notch, the behavior and attitudes of each phase of life change character entirely. Unmistakably, this happens between the late 1960s and now. It also happened between World War II and Vietnam, between World War I and World War II, and between the gay 90s and World War I, and indeed through all of American history. The generational constellation establishes our snapshot impression of the American life cycle of this moment, from the 17th century to the present day. If in any one year or decade we were to picture what it was then like to be a child, a young adult, middle-aged or old, or composite impression would be a hodgepodge of segments from very different generational life cycles. Piece together these constellational snapshots in a decade-by-decade newsreel of an evolving American life cycle, and the picture becomes hopelessly confusing. In this book, we suggest looking at the American life cycle as it has actually been living, lived by each generation, from childhood through old age. Using our earlier analogy, we suggest looking at the life cycle from the perspective of trains rather than situations at any given moment. We can see as many different life cycle stories, as many different trains, as a number of generations than, than alive. We treat generations as people moving through time. Each group or generation of passing people possessing a distinctive sense of self. We look at history just as an individual looks at his own life. We explain how a generation is shaped by its age location, that is, by its age-determined participation in epochal events that occur during his life cycle. During childhood, and especially during the coming-of-age experiences separating youth from childhood, this age location produces what we call 
a pure personality, a set of collective behavioral traits and attitudes that later express itself through a generation's life cycle trajectory. Because a pure personality of generational type shows new manifestations in each phase of life, and because it is determined by the constellation into which it is born, a pattern that is forever shifting, the ongoing interplay of pure personalities gives history a dynamic quality. How children are raised affects how they later parent. How students are taught affects how they later teach. How the youths come of age shapes their later ex exercise of leadership, which in turn substantially defines the coming of age experiences of others. This push and pull between generations moves synchronously with other alternating patterns in history, American history. For example, between periods of public action and private in introspection, secularism and spiritualism, cultural suffocation and liberation, fragmentation and consensus, overprotective and underprotective nurture of children. As we examine these pendular movements, a startling pattern emerges. A recurring cycle of four distinct types of peer personalities arriving in the same repeating sequence. From the 16th century forward, this cycle has been constantly turning. It has shown only one aberration following the Civil War when it skipped the beat and emitted the hubristic GI type. Each generation has its own unique story, of course. But when we strip away gradual secular trends, rising living standards, improving technology, expanding population, shifting geography, we see similar human dramas repeating again and again. If generations come in cycles, moreover, so do constellations. Each constellation era, each of the four possible layerings of pure personalities, possesses its own recognizable mood. As generations layer the self and age in place, one after the other, Lost, the Lost Generation, the GI Generation, Silent Generation, Boom Generation, the Thirteeners, which are Generation X, and so on. The mood, the mood of a constellation itself shifts over time. A constellation with outer focused doers in midlife and inner focused moralists in the youth, for instance, will set a national mood quite different from one with inner and outer focused generations in the opposite positions. Some constellations produce a national mood of staleness, others of rejuvenation. Some fight wars well, others badly. Some defer crisis, others congeal it. Looking back over American history, we find a correspondence between reoccurring patterns in generational constellations and reoccurring types of historical events. Consider, first, the four generation periods of crisis in, America, in American history. The colonial emergencies culminating in the glorious revolution of 1689, the American Revolution, the Civil War, and the twin emergencies of the Great Depression and World War II. All but one began at almost exactly the same constellation moment. Just as the first boom-type midlifers were entering elderhood and the first GI-type youths were coming of age, the Civil War occurred nearly on the schedule, but roughly a half-generation early. Now reflect on America's five great spiritual awakenings from the Puritans, City, Hall, City on a Hill. In the, 19, or in the 1630s to the Boomers, Consciousness Revolution. That began in the late 1960s. Without exception, all five began the same constellation moment. Just as the first GI-type midlifers were entering elderhood and the first boom-type children were coming of age. This recurring cycle of generational types and mood, moods help us not only to 
understand the past, but also to forecast how the future of America may well unfold over the next century. This cycle delivers no specific timetable of wars, stock market crashes, or scientific discoveries. It does offer an approximate, uh, an approximate calendar and itinerary of major changes that America can expect in the next decade and century, and important predictions about how today's children will grow up. Today's adults will grow old, and today's elders will be remembered. Our theory of generation is, in effect, two related theories. The emerging of two separate traditions of scholarship, first building on the generation approach, a, most, a mostly European school of sociology pioneered by Carl Mannheim, Jose Ortega e Gasset, and others. We propose what we call an age location perspective on history. Most historical narratives treat each separate age group, especially the midlife of leadership age group, as a continuous living entity over time. The reader rarely learns how earlier events experienced at younger ages influence later behavior at old ages. Examining history by age location, however, we can see how events shape the personalities of different age groups differently according to their phase of life, and how people retrain those personalities of personality differences as they grow older. Since we stress the link between age and events, the concept of a cohort group, a group of all persons born within a limited span of years, is central to our theory. We define a generation as a special cohort group whose length approximately matches that of a basic phase of life, or about 22 years over the last three centuries. Intuitively, Everyone recognized the importance of age location. A generation's place in history affects everything from nurture it receives from elders to the nurture it later gives its youth. Today's 50-ish and 60-ish silent generation can recall the smothering style of their own upbringing in the 1930s and 40s. In sharp contrast to the hurried children they raised in the 1960s and 70s. Everyone also recognizes how the same event can have a very different meaning for generations in different phases of life. Consider the Great Depression and its Pearl Harbor sequel. For children in the silent generation, it means tight protection for rising adults, the GIs. Teamwork and challenge for midlifers, lost, the lost generation. A new sense of responsibility for elders, missionaries. An opportunity to champion long-held visions, but the pattern is not the same for every event. Compare the Depression of the 1930s, for example, with the counterculture of the 1970s. The latter time, we saw children, the 13ers, grow up quickly and on, and on their own. Rising adults, the boomers, fragment and turn inward, midlifers, silent generation, speed up to the new sense of adventure, and the elders of the GI generation defend institutions under siege from the young. The lesson? There is no such thing as one universal life cycle. To the contrary, neighboring generations can can and do live very different life cycles depending on their respective age locations in history. While observing or trying to predict phase of life behavior, we must remember that the age of each generation is rising while the time moves forward. Thus, we can visualize age location along what we call the generational di diagonal. Tracing this diagonal allows us to connect the event, the age, and the behavior of the same generation over time. Yet this approach alone tells us little about 
how generations shape history. So we turn now to our second proposition, related to the first, generations come in cycles. Just as history produces generations, so too do generations produce history. Central to this interaction are critical events that we call social moments, which alternate between secular crises and spiritual awakenings. Because a social moment hits people in different phases of life, it helps shape and define generation. And because generations in different phases of life can together trigger a social moment, they help shape and define history, and hence new generations. Throughout American history, social moments have arrived at dates separated by approximately two phases of life, or roughly 40 or 45 years. Most historians look upon this rhyme rhythm as, at most, a curious coincidence. We look upon it as a key evidence that a generational cycle is at work, ensuring a rather tight correspondence between constellation and events. The correspondence is not exact, but the average deviation from what the cycle would predict is only three or four years. That, we think, is a small margin of error for a theory applied over four centuries. We label the four generation types idealist, reactive, civic, and adaptive, with one exception. They have always recurred in a fixed order. During a spiritual awakening, idealists are moving into rising adulthood, while reactives are appearing as children during a secular crisis. Civics are moving into rising adulthood, while adaptives are appearing as children. Later in life, these generations trigger another social movement and thus keep the cycle turning. Among today's living generations, the centenarian missionaries and rising adult boomers are idealists. The very old lost and coming-of-age thirteeners are reactives. The senior citizen GI and baby millennials are civics and the midlife silent and the adaptives, and the midlife silent generation are the adaptive. The first and third types are what we call dominant in public life. Idealists through redefining the inner world of values and culture, and civics through rebuilding the outer world of technology and institutions. The other two types are recessive in public life, checking the excesses of the more powerful neighbors. Reactives are pragmatists. Adaptives are ameliorators. The passage of four generations, idealist through adaptive, completes one full generational cycle over the course of four 22-year phases of life, a total duration of roughly 90 years. From the 1584 Puritan birth year forward, we can trace five such cycles through American history, of which three, colonial, revolutionary, and civil war, are fully ancestral. A winding fourth Great power comprises the eldest 28% of the American population at the beginning of 1991. And the emerging fifth millennial includes the youngest 72%. With these cycles, we identify 18 generations from John Winthrop's Puritans to Jesse McClure's millennials and a reoccurring pattern of awakening and crises. While each era has produced its special variation, the basic pattern has persisted unchanged since the late 16th century, when the peers of Sir Philip Sidney, Francis Bacon, and William Shakespeare's men, the age of the Puritans' fathers, triumphed in war, glorified silence, and praised the order of the universe. We leave our psycho prophecies for later. At this point, we focus on one demographic fact we can project for certain. 22 years from now, 
the generational constellation of 1991, the one we listed in figure 1, 1, will have moved up a notch, as shown in figure 1, 2. We assume the millennial generation will be of average length. This projection reminds us not just of our own personal mortality, but also the mortality of our generation. Like a person, a generation is allotted a limited time in each phase of life. Ultimately, most of what we associate with our generation, styles, habits, and artifacts will disappear. We will leave behind no more than what we persuade or oblige younger generations to take from us. Thus will all of us someday join the heritage of American civilization. America offers what may be mankind's longest and best case study of generational evolution. Since the 18th century, observers the world over have found this country unique for the freedom enjoyed by each successive generation to develop and act upon its own personality. When Alexis de Tocqueville visited America in the 1830s, he observed how generations mattered far more here than in Europe, how in America each generation is a new people. Tocqueville may have overstated the case. As we shall see, generational change in the old world played a key role in triggering the colonial cycle of the new world. Back when most settlers still believed themselves, culturally and socially, part of Europe, since then, generations in America have often shared a similar mindset, a sort of sympathetic vibration with their trans transatlantic peers. Like America, Western Europe also had its romantic radicals in the 1840s, its Blute and Eisen realist in the 1860s, its disillusioned generation de foi of World War I soldiers, and its Nouvelle Resistance students movement in 1968. Tocqueville's main point, however, remains sound, far more than the old world, with its tri tradition-shaped culture, hereditary elites, hierarchy hierarchical religion, and habits of class defense. America has always been unusually susceptible to generational flux, to the fresh influence of each new set of youth come of age. In the recent decades, as other societies have grown more open to mobile, this distinction between America and other societies may be disappearing. Were Tocqueville to travel to, through today's world, he might find many countries with generations born new. Shifts in pure personality have recently coursed through the modern societies in all continents. From Eastern Europe to the Pacific Rim, from the Middle East to Latin America, new generational waves are breaking. In Poland, Leech Walesa was born too late to remember World War II atrocities committed there by German and Soviet armies. Today's emerging thawed generation of Soviet leaders can recall the 20th Soviet Congress in 1956 when Khrushchev first challenged the memory of Joseph Stalin. They often cite this event as a critical coming-of-age experience. To place them in our own cultural artifacts, we could point to the opening and closing scenes in the movie Dr. Zivago, where the old revolutionary asked a 20-ish hydraulic worker to remember the turmoil and sacrifice of 1917. He draws blank stares from the obliging young woman, who then would have been roughly the same age as Reza or Mikhail Gorbachev. In Beijing, the ruling octogenarians of Deng Xiaoping's Long March generation offer a powerful, if chilling, example of how history can shape a generation in ways that, that, that cause it, decades later, to force a new set of youths to come of age 
through a bloody gauntlet. In Bucharest, meanwhile, this shaping process backfired on someone who launched a nationalist campaign in 1967 to raise a large and patriotic generation of Romanians. These late 1960s babies matured into the implacable student revolutionaries who, in 1989, sparked the very uprising that sealed this guy's demise. This may be an isolated phenomena, or they may reflect generational cycles in other societies. If the latter, our theory would not reflect anything uniquely American, just human nature working itself out in the world relatively unbound by tradition. So what's going on in America, and where are we at today? Reflect on the national life of the late 1830s, just after Tocqueville had written Democracy in America, the last of the great civic heroes of 1776, the Patriots of Bunker Hill, the Constitution Framers in Philadelphia, and the Caesar-like creators of E Pluribus Unum were passing away. Thomas Jefferson and Eli Whitney had both died a decade later, earlier. James Monroe and John Marshall within the last five years. James Madison was in his mid-80s. Noah Webster and Aaron Burr in their late 70s. Their passing was already being lamented by the likes of the 50-ish Daniel Webster, who wondered how America could cope without these men of massive solidarity, whom he, iron harvest of the Marshall Field, had united happily and gloriously in a great and common cause. Others in their 50s and 60s, Andrew Jackson's Democrats and Henry Clay's Whigs, complained about a gridlock Congress and had gestured nervously over mechanistic compromises and issues of character. On the great unresolved issues of the day, from slavery to Western settlement, America drifted without direction. Meanwhile, a rising younger generation of evangelicals utopian reformers and transcendentalists, the likes of Ralph Waldo Emerson and others, were redefining American culture according to fresh, self-discovered values. Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis, both reaching age 30, were showing signs of stern principle. Farther down the age ladder, hard-scrabbled children, Ulysses Grant, Stonewall Jackson, Andrew Carnegie, and Mark Twain, showed far less interest in philosophy than in action. Their peers were beginning to come of age amid criticism from older adults who found them shallow and reckless. Does this sound familiar? It should. In the late 1830s, generational types were lining up in just about the same constellation from elderly civics to teenage reactives that we see in present-day America. We find much the same pattern back in the late 1740s as memories of the young patriots of the glorious revolution, by then dead or quite old, gave way to confusion about the future. Midlife leaders and parents lacked their elders' sense of collection, uh, collective purpose. Gripped by a refined, highly analytical mindset, they saw life as complicated. Political choices of burdensome, as burdensome. Colonial society wobbled along, no one knowing exactly where. At the same moment, an introspective candor of preachers and moralists raging in age from the late 20s to mid-40s, including Jonathan Edwards, John Woolman, Benjamin Franklin, and Samuel Adams, were drawing spiritual zeal from their peers' recent Great Awakening. And a pugnacious 
liberty-loving troop of kids were just setting out to explore, fight, and strike it rich. Daniel Boom, Patrick Henry, Ethan, uh, Ethan Allen, and Benedict Arnold were on the edge of puberty. John Adams and George Washington, both teenagers, were burning with personal ambition. Sound familiar? Here again, it should. Here again, the constellation was turning to a position much like today's. Americans alive in those two past eras, just like Americans today, felt themselves living off the achievements of the past. They saw the present world as comfortable but lacking direction, perhaps crumbling in its foundations. They looked forward to their own future and the future of their children with a mixture of guilt and anxiety. In the late 1980s, an American could pick up a journal and read a serious-minded essay entitled The End of History and tuned to a pop radio station chanting lyrics like No New Tales to Tell, the lyrics of boredom. When history loses urgency, people tend to live at the expense of the future, despite their better judgment. What we find today are splintered families, downwardly mobile 20-year-olds, razor-thin saving rates, threats to the global environment, and eroding sense of national mission, and pyramiding entitlements for older generations crowding out investments needed by their heirs. As was true around 1750 and 1840, Americans in the early 1990s have only the vaguest sense of what the future holds for their society as a whole and for each living generation. Here's where the cycle can help. The story of civilization seldom moves in a straight line, but it is but is rich with curves, oscillations, and mood shifts. The ebb and flow of history often reflects the ebb and flow of generations, each with a different age location, peer personality, and life cycle story. By viewing history along the generational diagonal, by searching the cycle for behavior clues, we can apply the mirror of recurring human experience to gaze around the corner of current trends and say something in instructive about the decades to come. The life cycle experience of ancestral generations tell us, in particular, that the peer personality of each generational type expresses itself differently from one phase of life to the next. For example, idealist generations like Samuel Adams typically come of age attacking elder-built institutions before retreating into self-absorbed remission, but later mature into uncompromising, gray champion moralist. Reactive generations like George Washington bubble over with alienating risk-taking in their 20s, but age into mellow pragmatist by their 60s. Civic generations like Cotton Mathers are aggressively institution founders when young, but stolid institution defenders when old. Adaptive generations like Theodore Roosevelt are elder-focused conformists early in life, but junior-focused pluralists later on. With 14 generational life cycles already completed, we can draw on a rich source of analogs to help us understand how the peer personalities of today's four youngest generations, silent, boom, 13th, and millennial, are likely to express themselves as they age in place. And looking back over four full generational cycles, we can also project how the national mood will evolve over the next half century as the generational constellation clicks up one, two, and then three notches.
History does not guarantee good endings. The American saga is replete with good and bad acts committed by generations no less than by individuals. Our national liturgy reminds us how ancestral generations provide helpful endowments that made progress possible. From the clearing of land to the building of infrastructure, from the waging of wars against tyrants to the writing of great literature. Yet ancestral generations have also at times inflicted terrible harms on their heirs. From instituting slavery to exterminating Indian tribes, from exploiting child labor to accumulating massive public debts, a lesson of the cycle is that each generational type specializes in its own unique brand of positive and negative endowments. Each of today's adult generations, the GI uh, generation, silent generation, boom generation, the 13ers, has its own special way of helping or hurting the future. Each collectively has choices to make that will determine what sort of world its heirs will someday inherit and how those heirs will remember its legacy. We shall return at our story's end to what history suggests those choices will be. We open with an account of inaugural parades celebrating the heroism of the, the GIs. Today's babies are being nurtured under conditions that could someday make them, like the GIs, a dominant generation of can-doers, victors in great struggles, and builders of great things. Around the year 2050, when the first millennial generation president is inaugurated, his or her peers may indeed have as many heroic memories to celebrate as the peers of John Kennedy and George Bush had in 1961 and 1989. With four centuries of history as a guide, we can see how today's small children lie not at the end, but near the beginning of a new generational cycle. And they will have many new tales to tell. That's the end of this chapter, all right.